0: Hey, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we are glad that you are with us because you're joining us in the beginning of a series that we are studying in the book of Jonah together. Um, we are in chapter two. There's four chapters in Jonah. We're taking one chapter per, per week and going through the story of Jonah. And if you know anything about Jonah, <clears throat> chances are as soon as I said the word Jonah, an image probably popped up in your mind of which you think is central to the theme of Jonah. And that image was what? A f- who said, a- anybody say a A whale? Fish. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to splice hairs. It, it's most likely a whale, but but the scripture just tells us it's a fish or uh, something ginormous, right? I'm going to just go with the Loch Ness monster. I think we've got liberty here because the Bible's not specific, all right? But this giant fish eats Jonah and swallows him, and uh, <clears throat> that's typically the way that we think of the story of Jonah. It's about this guy and this fish. But really, as we st- go through this series together, when we think about the significant things that are found in the story of Jonah, um, when we get to the end of this, my, my hope is and desire, we're going to think through this critically together, and that when you prioritize the significant things in the life of Jonah, that fish be like fifth or less on your list of what Jonah is about. In fact, I'm already pushing this for the vote. If we're talking about animals or creatures that are the most scary in this book, fish doesn't even win. It's the worm in chapter four. He has a worm that comes up and eats an entire tree and kills it. Like, I don't know what kind of worm that takes, but for me, I immediately think of Kevin Bacon and Tremors, right? Just whatever that thing is, Bursts the ground, devours the tree. <laughs> Jonah, get out of, you got to get on a rock and you need some dynamite. That's what I learned. But, but that worm to me is more powerful than the fish. I mean, fish eating someone that's, that's realistic. Worm killing tree. I don't know how big that worm has to be, but so, but when you think through Jonah, they're, they're there are things even, even more specific about that that are important to the story. Uh, for example, chapter 3, Jonah shares a message. It's not even a long message. It's like just a few short words. And he sees an entire city, thousands and thousands of people, the most, one of the most wicked places in all the world, come to know the Lord and put their faith in him. And that's pretty significant. But I think more important than all of that, what we discover in this story is that the story is really about a journey of a man and his relationship with God. He, he starts off the story as a rebellious individual. And then in chapter three, he shows that he can be a religious individual. He, he sort of goes through the motions of what he's told to do, but he never totally gives his heart to God. But yet God is gracious to him in all of that. In fact, you see that as the theme in, in chapter one as the story unfolded for us. Like God calls Jonah, he says, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is one of the most violent places in the world. They've actually attacked Israel a few times already. Uh, it's, in, it's in modern day Iraq in the northwest part of, of Iraq. These are people that are a violent people. These are people that have come against his own people and God's called him to go into the city and preach this message. And if you look at the message Jonah has to preach, it sort of summarizes like Turn or Burnt. I mean, you can think about being the most unpopular guy in the room and a short life expectancy. It would be going into a, a violent place and sharing that message. It would almost maybe be similar to, to a place where ISIS has a stronghold and control and you go in and say you're a Christian. And, and on top of that, you're a Christian American. It's like, uh, probably probably not going to fly in that s- typical situation. So Jonah thinks about it for about two seconds. He's like, okay, I can go to Nineveh, which is like 500 miles across the desert. Where I got my cousin down in Long Beach, who has got a place on the sand next to the ocean. I can watch it all day. So he jumps on a boat and heads to Tarshish, right? He's like, I am out of here. See you later. But what you see about Jonah in leaving is that verse three, verse five, when he gets onto the boat in chapter one, it says, it doesn't say he got on the boat in verse three. It says he went down into the boat he didn't board it, he went down in it. And then in verse 5, again, while the the storm's going on, sailors are freaking out. If you're ever on a boat and the sailors are going crazy, you know it's time to panic, right? But Jonah, it tells us again that he went down into the depth of the boat. And what the author's doing in the story is he's he's giving us a play on words of of where Jonah's own condition is. This idea for going down literally means he's he's taking a step towards death. I mean, Jonah's depressed, spiritually separated from God. He's at his low point in life. But then something incredible happens in verse 17. You see as the story unfolds there's a crazy storm sailors going crazy they're trying to figure out what's going wrong they're worshiping their false gods trying to figure this out and then Jonah he, he's woken up and they're like why are you not panicking like us he's like i serve the god of the land and the sea like you're going after these demigods you think the sea god or the land god or the fertility god or the crop gods mad at you no it's the it's the king of kings and lord of lords and he's coming after me you guys have to throw me overboard and they're like we're not throwing you overboard you're crazy for even getting on board but we're going to try to save your life and eventually to a place where they, they throw Jonah over. And then it says in verse 17, something, <clears throat> something very powerful about the theme, I think of what chapter, uh, chapter one is. And it says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, typically if, if we were, um, getting eaten by a fish, we might think to ourselves, um, Like, I'm cursed, there's something wrong, this is not good. But in in Jonah's life, this was a a glorious, gracious thing that God is doing. And this is what it's saying. The text here says, had appointed, right? The theme of Jonah is teaching us really that you, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Meaning Jonah gets on this boat and we see God running after Jonah. But then at the same time, at the end of the chapter, it's telling us, and, and God is already before Jonah. Meaning God isn't blown away by the mistakes Jonah had made. And if you say anyone had blown it, it's someone who hears the audible voice of God and just does the exact opposite of what the Lord wants. I mean, you're blowing it, Jonah. And God still loves you. Because before you had even messed up, before you had even disobeyed, God already knew what was in your heart. And God had already appointed a fish. Before the foundation of the world, I think God had created this fish knowing that one day it was going for Jonah. Jonah. What it says to us, no matter how deep or, or in dismay or messy your life may be, it's, it's not too far from the mercy and love of God. Not only is God pursuing you for relationship with you, he is already before you. God has, has appointed a fish. So what scripture tells us is that Jonah isn't the only one that has a fish. You do too. In fact, in the Gospels, an unbelieving, unrepentant generation of wicked individuals, as Jesus called them in Matthew and Luke, they kept coming to Jesus and saying, give us a sign, show us that you're Messiah. And Jesus tells them, I'm only going to give you one sign. It's the sign of, the, of Jonah. Three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the belly of the well, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Why? For you, God has already appointed for you the place for you to meet with him, a place where you can t- continue to interact with his grace and experience his presence because of what God has done for you. This, this theme of the story of Jonah, once you get the story of Jonah, you know the Bible is a, is a big, a large book in comparison to Jonah, but when you see the theme of Jonah, what you see is the overarching principles that hold all of scripture together just in the life of Jonah and what God is about and his pursuit with us and redemption of mankind, even when we're enemies of him, even when we're rebellious against him, even when we're religious and no heart and participation and truly wanting to worship the God. Jonah is the theme of scripture. I think the, the idea and the theme of what, what Jonah is about is the reason the Jewish people on their most sacred day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the only day they go into the Holy of holy place in their temple to sacrifice it's, it's the reason on this day they read the book of Jonah and when it's complete, they say in unison together, we are Jonah. So the point of Jonah isn't about a fish. A fish is just a tool. It's about a man's journey and his walk with God. And how God uses us in our circumstance for his glory as we walk with him in that journey together. And what you see is the end of chapter one comes along is that God even uses storms in our lives. How many in your life has been like, man, I, I have been through some storms, right? Uh, physically, I like storms. Spiritually, um, I, I can appreciate storms only in this sense. Um, I grew up in the south or in the east and the, some in the south. I kind of bounced around a little bit as a kid. And um, there is nothing like a southeastern thunderstorm. If you've ever been around that, you know what I'm talking about, where, where you, you're, you're outside one day in this field and there's only one tree around and you're on the t- tallest, tallest point and all of a sudden you feel the wind blow and the static electricity is so strong, the hair on your arms is just standing up straight and you're like, oh no, <laughs> like, I got to get away from here. You know, So that part of the storm you don't like. But when I was a kid, my grandmother used to as, as kids, not really caring about storms, still just loving the rain, she would call us in so we wouldn't uh, get struck by lightning. And the way that she would tempt us, she would say, in the south, I mean, I'm from everywhere, they drink sweet tea, right? So uh, the way she would tempt us is she would make warm sweet tea with a little bit of milk in it. Right? She'd call it all to her grandkids. And, and in the deep south, like um, front porches, those are like a must-have, you know? Um, you got to have those wraparound. I mean, that's, that's just the picture of the colonial style home, just the wraparound porch. And, and so she had this big old porch. And I remember us as kids, we would come in and we would just be sipping our sweet tea with her grandmother who preserves our life. And, and we would just watch the storms roll in and the, and the wind blow and some of the rain coming under and the static electricity just moving through your body. I mean, it was an incredible experience to see the joy of a storm, but from the place of protection, Uh, even in our own lives in a personal way, I mean, I I know I've heard multiple people say, you know, I've gone through storms in my life and I would never choose to do it again. But because of that storm, God has molded me into the person I am today. Matter of fact, some of you may point to those storms that were the very reason that even brought you before the Lord. That's what Jonah chapter two is. Jonah, through a storm, finds himself, and I think even in a worse circumstance now, in the belly of a fish. But he recognizes that this, this fish was ordained or appointed by God, not for his destruction, but for his good. And so Jonah, in running from God, now begins to ask the question, how can I, how can I run to God? How do we run to God? If he's not physically in front of you. And the answer In Jonah's life, I think the answer for us is is found in prayer. No matter how deep you're in it, you can always pray. Jonah teaches us even from the belly of a well. And and what we learn about prayer is that even good prayer, some of the greatest prayers are are born in in adversity. Whether it was your fault or not, just, just that need of desperation and that ability to cry out to God. And what you see when you look at prayer, people who have lived some of the hardest lives or facing adversity, are oftentimes some of the best prayer warriors in this world. So today I want to talk to you about prayer. But I'm be honest, when you mention the idea of, of discussing prayer in a group full of, of, of people, it's... I know not everyone's in that place where they want to discuss prayer. In fact, you might just look at it, roll your head, and think, ah, oh, man, why are we going to talk about prayer? I understand we need to pray, so we should pray. So why prayer? Questioning why is, why should we even pray? or Why should we even discuss prayer? You know, I think when we respond that way, it really starts to reveal a condition within our heart, maybe the condition of our heart. And David Platt, when he batted the question of why people ask why we should even pray, this this was his response. Because people question it because you don't need to pray when you're watching TV. You don't need to pray when you're mindlessly surfing the internet. You don't need prayer when there is nothing at stake in your Christianity. You don't need prayer when there is no risk in your Christianity. You don't need prayer when Christianity consists of monotonous religious motions. You don't need prayer for that. You can do it on your own. But when you risk everything to glorify Jesus Christ, you need prayer. When you sacrifice possession, dreams, hopes, and career, and you lay it all out on the line, and you stake your reputation down on your allegiance to Christ, you need prayer. When you, you're longing day in and day out is to lead people to Christ, you need prayer. You rely on prayer. You're desperate for prayer. Because you're devoted to his mission. And when the aim of your life is to affect as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ for the glory of God, you will find yourself given over to prayer. And just consider this is kind of pointed, maybe a little sharp. Maybe maybe we aren't praying if we're not. Maybe we're not praying because maybe we're boring. And honestly, maybe we're really not living life. Or maybe we're blind to see how dependent we really are on the Lord. Or maybe because we don't see our dependency, we aren't thankful for what God gives. Or maybe we just don't care. We don't care if God's work is accomplished and we don't care if we're a part of it. I don't know. There's many reasons why, why we could describe possibility, why we struggle with prayer, why we might not pray. But let me, let me just, let's just consider this for a moment. What if you only had in life the things you prayed for? And what if we could peel back the curtain, we could say, okay, we're gonna take it back. We're gonna take back from your life. <clears throat> we're gonna take back and away from your life anything you didn't mention in prayer, anything you weren't thankful for God for in prayer. Well, I mean, well, how far would that strip your life Now, when you consider what prayer is, the Bible uh, tells us or points to the fact that prayer, as you think through this, prayer doesn't exist for God. Prayer is not for him because there's nothing that God needs. He's not dependent on us calling on him. He doesn't need for us to cry out to him. Prayer, Prayer doesn't exist for God. Rather, what that makes it for us is that, is that we recognize then in prayer that prayer is a, is a gift for you. Prayer is a, a sacred opportunity to interact with the one who's created you with, within his image so that you can respond in relationship to him. Prayer then for us is precious. When you consider prayer and how to pray, the Bible gives us all sorts of ways in, in describing prayer and what makes prayer important and how people pray throughout scripture. In fact, if you look at, in, in your uh, bulletin this morning, you'll see there's connection group questions and question three in there deals with going through particular uh, prayers that are mentioned in scripture, what Jesus taught us to pray, John 17 and, and, and Matthew, uh, Matthew 6 and verse nine, or, or the way Paul prayed, and you know, the focus, <coughs> the focus of their prayer. is often much broader than we tend to pray. In fact, if we get honest with our prayer, we ask the question, I mean, what if you only kept what you pray for? And we get honest with prayer. A lot of times when we pray, uh, we really pray only because we need something, meaning we pray in a very niche sort of way. There's something I specifically need, so therefore I go to God and I tell servant, God, my servant, my puppet master, what he needs to do for me because I am in charge and he is my slave, Right? And so we treat prayer sort of in that way, like it's, it's almost abusive towards God, that the only time I interact with him is when I need something and I make him do, or I call out to him to do what I want because I am his servant, or he is, he is my servant, excuse me. But what you see in the context of prayer is that prayer is much broader than that in scripture and it doesn't just involve telling God what we need in life, but, but there's all sorts of aspects to, to praying before the Lord. And, and Jesus even said in Matthew, end of chapter, Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 5, at the end, and, and chapter 6, Jesus describes individuals in praying and what, what they're doing wrong and why it's about religious performance or appearance and what's wrong with their prayer. And then Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, Instead, you pray this way. Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Jesus leads us through prayer. And as you think through the prayer that Jesus introduces to his disciples, it's first acknowledging the position of God. And that the moment, this moment is sacred, this moment is holy, coming, hallowed be your name, the sacred God that we get to come before. And the focus of the prayer isn't just coming to him and telling him what you want, but rather aligning our hearts with his kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done. That the gift of this isn't for me to tell you what to do, but me to join you on your mission in this world. The prayer is not... God forcing, uh, being forced to align Himself with our hearts, but us aligning our hearts with His. Paul described it this way in Ephesians chapter six and verse eighteen: "With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit." What does that mean to to pray in the Spirit? It's simply saying that you're aligning your heart with God's desires in this world. That you would be used for his kingdom, his glory, and his goodness. The reason for which you were created as a light and image bearer of him to those around you. God, whatever it takes to be on that page, on mission for you, your kingdom, your glory. That I would join in that, that this this day that I see it as a gift for all that you are, with all that I am, for you as my King. Jonah tells us, Jonah chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. Pray to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Jonah, in this moment, no doubt recognizes the significance of his ability to come before God. And and he, he describes for us really where this prayer takes place, the belly of the well. Yeah, ask the question, where is it that we are supposed to pray in our our lives? The Bible tells us in Matthew 5 and 6 that what Jesus doesn't want us to do is just to pray for appearance and and to be boastful before individuals, but rather find a closet, pray privately. I mean, it's a sacred thing. It's not about making yourself look good. It's about connecting to God. It's not that we can't pray publicly. We can, but the motivation of the heart is what drives it. And we're looking here in Jonah, and he just says, even from the belly of the well, it doesn't matter. The location doesn't matter the attitude. The Bible tells us 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 that you are the temple of God, which means this, wherever you go, the presence of God is with you. It's not the building that makes it special. In fact, it's not even you that makes it special. It's what Jesus has done for you that makes it special. So the only reason we're able to connect to God wherever we are has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with Jesus and what He's done. So, when can we pray, and how do we pray? We pray. We pray at any moment, any time. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians five seventeen: Pray without ceasing. Without ceasing, it's it's not this idea of you cannot talk to anyone now because you're in constant prayer mode. You know, you're walking around, someone says hi, says, sorry, I'm in prayer. You know, I'm praying without ceasing today, First Thessalonians 5.17, look it up. You know, it's not, it's not what that means, but, but rather this idea of praying without ceasing, this time of year, you know what it's like to get the, the cold, right? Get that cough that you can't get rid of. This morning my, my throat is struggling, and, and, uh, and it's just this reminder constantly, this cough that will just come back, that you wrestle with. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. It's walking in this world continually aware of the presence of God with you and interacting with him as you go throughout this day. So when we pray, how we pray, uh, the Bible desires that your heart be one of prayer towards the recognition of God's presence in your life. And I could give you an outline, a structure on the way prayers break down in scripture. But can I tell you, I I think sometimes when we explore that, it, it takes away from the main theme of what prayer is about. Meaning... I could give you a formal outline, but formality sometimes becomes the enemy to intimacy. And the greatest gift that prayer gives to us is intimacy with God. What makes prayer so special isn't the formality. It's the thought that you, by God's grace, are given access to him. It's a gift, and it's so sacred. We arrive to God in prayer because of what he has done for us. I think when, when Paul wrote these words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and I think this is a Jew writing to the Jews, and he's thinking a picture of the temple here, which in the temple only the high priest went into the sacred place, the place of God's presence. Just one man, one time a year. And then Paul now pins Paul now these words. I can imagine how excited he would have been to pin these words, but, but how, how sacred this moment would have been, how powerful he thought it was. And then he says this, talking about prayer, come boldly to the throne of grace. You, you think in Jonah's life, I mean, if anyone doesn't deserve prayer, if anyone has blown it, it's, it's one who is claiming to be a leader for God, a prophet of God, who ignores God and runs away. Joni, you've blown it, you get no shot, that's it, God's done with you. You're the last person God wants to hear from, right? When Paul writes these words in Hebrews chapter 4, he's writing it to believers in the midst of temptation talking about our own struggles in life. And at the end of that, that's where he then says, come boldly to the throne of grace. I mean, you know what it's like when you've blown it, whether you've done it publicly, privately, whatever it is, you fall on your face, you think about the Lord, you're like, How, why does God want to hear from me? Why does God want to talk to lowly me? And the answer is it's because of him. His grace, His gift, His mercy, His goodness. That's why whenever, wherever you are, prayer becomes a a, a beautiful way in which to come before God and utter your position and need before him and and confess. In fact, when you look, if I were to give you a formality in scripture, some people have gone through the Bible and looked at the ways prayers are mentioned in the Bible and they've come up with an acronym of, uh, of, of one word to describe it. It's ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. I mean, you, you, you adore God, you confess before God, you're thankful to God, and you ask God to supply. When you look in Jonah chapter two, chapter two, verse two, Jonah takes the approach of confession before the Lord because of where he is and how his decision to rebel against God has left him separated from the Lord in relationship to him. And so he says, he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord. And look, he didn't ignore me and my sinfulness, but rather he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, which is the place of the dead. And you heard my voice. Jonah chooses confession. What we look at in scripture is this. Psalm 51, verse 17 says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise Jesus even said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. God's presence with us in prayer. And Jonah goes on from there. And in verse 3, he says, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. It's interesting the way that Jonah describes this in verse 3. Because you read chapter 1 and you see when Jonah recognized the storm was uh, caused through him and his disobedience to God, he tells the sailors to throw him over. The sailors don't want to at first, but eventually they realize their life is going to go down if they don't get rid of Jonah. And so the sailors throw him over. But here it says in verse 3, For you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the current engulfs me. What Jonah's acknowledging in this moment is that God's sovereign hand is over and above all of these moments. That he, he hears him, he is before him, he is behind him, that God, God is with him in all of this. And then Jonah describes in verse, verse 4 to 7 his, his position before the Lord. He just wants to cry out where he is before God. And I'm going to break these down into just two thoughts. But he says, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompasses me to the point of death. The great deep engulf me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So Jonah's acknowledging in verse 4 and 7, his, his interaction where it's brought him, in God's hand of grace. He says in verse 4, that he's been expelled from God's sight, yet God's grace, I will look towards your temple. Verse 7, I am fainting, I, I remember the Lord, and came to you, and then into your holy temple. That in his position, he found himself walking in death from God, but before the Lord, he finds himself in the hands of grace. God had prepared a fish. In talking about the temple, it's in the Jewish mind, the presence of where God is. In the life of the believer, his presence is promised there with us. In verse five and six, then Jonah gives a physical description of his spiritual condition. He's in the water to the point of death. Weeds are around him. But he recognizes the end of verse six. You have brought me up, my life from the pit. Jonah's acknowledging before God where we get apart from him and what makes prayer so significant to our lives. Can I tell you, maybe one of the hopes when we read a text like this all of us can look at the story of Jonah and be like, man, I have, I have been to a place where Jonah has been. I mean, you think in your life, you, you know, there was a moment where you were praying like no other, like you have never prayed before because of circumstances you've gone through. I I think in my own life, which what led me a lot to to decision that eventually brought me to Utah was when I was 19, I went and served overseas and uh, just this Christian work going on. And And this tribal group in this jungle area got mad at the group that I was with. And they came to the home to take care of business. I mean, literally pitchforks and torches. And I'm the only one there. And I look down the hill, and I see this mob coming up this hill where I am in this home. And I, I run in, I run in, and I lock all the doors, and the windows are barred, and the doors are like these steel-thick doors. <clears throat> but I lock the doors, and every room in the house has these, all these deadbolt-thick steel doors to them. So I go in the bedroom where I'm at. I lock the doors. I hit my knees, and I pray. The craziest thing happened. And I'm like three seconds into prayer, and I fall asleep. Some people might say passed out, but whatever happened, <laughs> you think in that moment, I'm just so concerned, you know, all the adrenaline would be pumping, like today is my last day on earth. That's the way it felt. And then I hit my knees and I start praying. Next thing I know, I wake up the next morning and the sun's up. And I go to the front door and I unlock it and I step outside and as soon as I step outside, the first thing I, in, I encounter are police officers. And they're, they're like blown away. I, I step in they look at me they're like, there was a person in there? They, they all came up because they heard this what this tribe was going to do up in this area. And they're surprised that someone's, one, alive, but two, that they're inside this building. I come walking out from the outside of this facility and they're looking at me. I'm like, yeah, see you guys. I jumped, run down the hill, I jump in a cab and I was, I was out of there. But God shows up in those times. It's true in the moments of the well. But can I tell you and maybe encourage you um, not to be so fooled that we are that dependent on God every day. I mean, sometimes the well helps us recognize it. But even when we're not aware of it, That's the dependency all of us really have in our creator God who sustains all things. And so when we talk about the prayer of Jonah, we're not just talking about that one difficult moment in life, which I hope, I hope this encourages you just to continue to seek God in those things, but to see the need for the Lord in our lives every day. In fact, in verse 8, Jonah then begins to reflect, I think, of the sailors on the ship that he was with, and he says this, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I think he's thinking of the sailors on the ship who were worshiping the false idols. Recognizing that they're not going to provide in that situation. But then he says this in verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. And then he says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is, belongs to the Lord. You don't earn it, you don't achieve it, but by His grace, it is both behind you, before you. God's, God's grace is sufficient for us in that, because it belongs to him and His strength. And then it gives us this gross verse. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Anytime I get sick, if that happens, it's a fail. I consider that a fail. (laughs) Now, this has nothing to do with anything spiritual, but I think it will help us in the leading in the next week. But could you picture this moment? Like, you're the guy on the beach, took a day off work. You're like, man, I need a break today. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden this moment happens. And I don't know, I've never seen what a person might look like after three days in stomach acid. But I'm, I'm going to guess, maybe a little pigment gone, maybe a little hair gone. It's probably a sign of the apocalypse, right? Something, something scary there. And that's what's happening on the beach. And the guy's also now learning a lesson on prayer. But in summary of all this, let me, let me give you the, just some thoughts about prayer. You get prayer when you approach God, not because of what you've done because of what he has done for you. We become prayerful people when we realize we are desperate, needy, dependent. And we see it as God's gift, as a way to connect. And at the same time, you are never more loved, cared for, and heart heard than when you're in prayer. In fact, in Romans, this is the way it describes the spirit that indwells believers. It says, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. You ever get to that place where you're in a, you're in a place where you're so excited or you're so, you're so sad within your heart that there's, there's not even an English word, there's not even a word, period, to even describe it? Like your soul is aching, or your soul is rejoicing. says this but the spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words I'm just sitting before the presence of God wanting your heart to connect to his he knows never is your heart more heard never are you more listened to Psalm fifty one seventeen, a broken and contrite spirit the Lord will not despise. God cares. You see that in the story of Jonah, an imperfect man that God uses to reach the world. God also doing a work in him. And prayer becomes a part of it. You think about what God calls us to in this world. You see God working in the life of Jonah in this moment and God's called him to be a light to this world and he goes on to Nineveh and shares this message and sees thousands of people come to know him. God's given all of us the same calling. To be image bearers of God's light, to be image bearer of God, light for him in this world and and to share his his truth in love and to care for those as Christ cares for him in, in this world. Sometimes that may involve storms for us to wake up in it, but the change on the back end of that is is beautiful. But God, God calls all of us to be this light. And to be honest, if we care about it and we live in it, we recognize just how much we need God to walk with us through it, we will become a prayerful people. Let me just open it this way. How can we be a people that see a change in this world? How can we be a people of, of light that pushes back darkness, that sees the end of evil? How, how does that happen? Can I introduce you to maybe one of my heroes that inspires me in the way that he lived life? He gave this quote, which is a, a great practical quote at any point, wherever you are in life. But he says this, silence in the face of evil is itself Evil meaning if you choose to be quiet, that's still a stand. And when you let innocence suffer by being silent, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak and not to act is to act. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now that that's important, right? I mean, it tells you as a Christian, if you're the lie of the world, you have the truth and then take a stand, live for what's right. Don't, don't be silent and don't be annoying either. Love people, right? Do that. And the Bible even tells you, pray for your enemies. I mean, you think even this past week, we had a lot of political change in our country and people have all kinds of opinions on it. But can I tell you this guys, if we hand over what God has called us to be to to some political ruler, as if they're going to make the change, we've already lost the battle. Political leaders, well, let's just say America, presidents, they're not going to change your country, you are. They're not going to reach your neighbor, you are. They're not going to feed the homeless, you are. They're not going to point people to Jesus, you are. They're not going to pray for your family as you are. When God's called you to be the light, being silent is a position. But you know, at the same time, standing up and saying things that are difficult isn't easy. How are you going to do that? You know, it's interesting when you study the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in the 1940s in Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up. I mean, he made these kind of statements in the midst of an evil regime. In fact, he regularly declared the truth of who God is and the love that God had for people and the reason we needed to stand for life, especially in his world. He, He stood for that. So much so that in April of 1945, just 23 days before Germany surrendered, His life was taken in a concentration camp. He was hanged. When you study Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, and you ask the question, how. Did a man stand so strong in a place with such opposition? How did he do that? How was he a light? How, how did his life matter? How, how did he shine so brightly that now, so many years later, we're still standing and talking about him today, and he's still an inspiration to the life of Christians around him? How was he like that? You want know what you find when you study Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a man that emphasized prayer. In fact, regularly he he wrote to Christians do not start your day without meeting your God on your knees. In in fact, from prison, not not too long after he loses his life, this is what, what he wrote Oh God, early in the morning I cry to you. Help me to pray. And to concentrate my thoughts on you. I cannot do this alone. In me there is, not, there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Restore me and enable me to live now that I may answer before you and before me, Lord, whatever this day may bring, your name be praised. I think when we take serious the calling at God's place in our lives, the position we've been granted, the powerful tool that prayer is, will not neglect it. I think when our hearts sit in the reality of the desperation of where we are as human beings, that what we need in this world and the grace and the truth and the love that's found in Christ, when we aren't callous to that, but we live open to that, we see that the only solution for all of it is to find ourselves in prayer before the Lord, crying out to Him in need. And with that, the prayer of Jonah isn't just a one-day prayer in the belly of a whale. But it comes, becomes an everyday prayer for not only our sake, but for the sake of those around us. What if all you had in this world is what you prayed for? What if God today would answer our prayers what if we really sought his face for the things that we know not only we need but also the people around us you know what I think that makes us a dangerous people about to see change